The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Good morning. Good to be uh, with you this morning and to continue in this uh, series, especially uh, this week as we wrap up classes. Looking forward to Friday's Christmas Chapel, always a good time here. Looking forward to being with you again then and then Christmas at Cairn and then uh, next week those, uh, what do we call those? Uh, final exams. Um, so uh, we will be praying for you uh, as uh, Dean Swift has done and we'll keep doing that, but looking forward to, uh, to this week as we uh, close out the semester in terms of classes and celebrate the Christmas season. This morning, I want to continue uh, in this uh, series, What in the World Are We Doing? A Biblical Perspective on Our Roles, Relationships, and Responsibilities. And uh, as we've been doing all semester, and I'll continue into the spring because uh, we've actually broken this one down a little bit longer, and this is the third installment on marriage and family, we've been looking at these aspects of the Christian life that are lived out in this world. We talked about marriage, we talk about family, we're going to talk about work, we're going to talk about the church, all these areas of our lives where we have relationships and responsibilities and roles to fulfill in this world and that those are actually instituted by God's design and though the world around us in the days in which we live might be pulling at those things and speaking into our lives that they are antiquated, that they are outdated, that they are impositional, that they are in fact part of God's perfect design and we are to live out our Christian faith in this world by fulfilling those roles and responsibilities and enjoying those relationships in a way that furthers his purposes and brings him glory. And so uh, we'll continue with that through this year, and today I want to undertake this uh, marriage and family part three. The first one, we talked about the fact that uh, marriage is ordained by God and instituted at creation, that it is not uh, something that is a part of any cultural tradition, but rather what God intended from the very beginning by giving Adam and Eve to one another in the garden and telling them to be fruitful and multiply. That it is embedded in creation for God's purposes and for the good of the world. And then last time I spoke a little bit more about the high view of marriage that we're to hold as Christians, and particularly looking at that Ephesians passage in chapter 5 about husbands and wives, but then drawing some implications from that for the need for us to have a high view of marriage and the way that we practice marriage. And then I spilled over even to address some issues of having a high view of the way in which we pursue marriage. I I ventured into your world a little bit with regard to dating. I really want to ask you how it's going, but I will not. (laughs) I did hear from two alumni who uh, caught the message and asked why we didn't give them permission to do those things when they were students. <laughs> and um, so we talked a little bit about that last time. Today, I want to talk specifically about children and parenting as it relates to marriage and family. I do not intend to exhaust the subject. I do not intend to give you a blueprint for raising your own families. I will not be attempting to resolve 
uh, the issues that the church has struggled with uh, in practical ways, ranging from contraception and size of families to uh, the ways in which we go about raising our children. We'll talk about all of that over the course of the year, but today I want us to think about family and marriage in the context of what Scripture says and how Scripture views it, particularly this aspect of family that relates to the issue of children and parents. The last time that we were together, we looked at the Ephesians 5 passage where Paul exhorts those Christians, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church, and so on. In chapter 6 of that letter, Paul says this, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then quoting from the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Then he goes on and says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And I just want to say by way of review that it's very tempting to read through the book of Ephesians, this great letter to the church, the Christians at Ephesus, that has all of these wonderful doctrinal truths and the the mystery of the gospel revealed and the statement that we're dead in sin but God being rich in love made us alive, the exhortations to walk in a particular way and then it's so tempting to think that when Paul comes to the conclusion of the letter he just adds on some practical things uh, so that the Christians who maybe got bored with the theological stuff or uh, were pressured a little bit about the exhortation to walk a particular way had something practical to put their hands on or hang their hats on and that's not in fact the way this reads. If you read it in one sitting, what you will see is that the way in which we carry out our lives in our families, the way in which we live as mothers and fathers and daughters and sons is to be a reflection of a worthy walk, a wise walk, a walking in love, a walking in light that is tied to the fact that we are redeemed by Christ. In other words, what Paul is saying to these Christians is these theological truths that have been outlined and these exhortations to live your Christian life in a particular way should be manifest in the most practical aspects of our lives, the way husbands and wives treat one another, the way parents and children relate to one another, the way that we carry out our work in this world. The gospel has implications for our relationships and responsibilities in this world. And I don't think that Paul's simply slapping this on at the end of a letter to give them something practical to think about. I think actually if you read it this way, you would say, if children are to obey their parents in light of the Old Testament teaching about honoring fathers and mothers, if fathers are not to provoke their children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, it is because we are not like the lost world dead in sin, but rather have been redeemed through Jesus Christ. Our families should reflect that, not just the way they're lived out, but our view of family, our view of parenting, our view of what it means to be a child who honors their parents should all be informed by these great doctrinal and gospel truths that Paul outlines. And they're a a manifestation of what it means to walk worthy and wise to be imitators of God, to walk in love, it should be borne out in these most practical aspects of life. And in this particular aspect of thinking about the family, I want to call our attention to this issue of what it means to think about children and parenting. And everybody in the room is not a parent. Everybody in the room will not even eventually be a parent. It's not for everyone. Some folks do not get to do that. But everybody in this room is the mother or son of someone. This is by God's design. This is the way the whole thing started. 
Adam and Eve are formed by God and every other human being is a born of a woman and has a mother and a father. And that view of family permeates the entire scripture. The passage that Dean Swift read for us from Psalm 127 shows us not just that the psalmist has a high view of children and the blessing and benefit of it, but that God's word actually holds this up throughout, that children are not a burden but a blessing. Now, not all children are as much of a blessing (laughs) as some children. I mean, David wrote a lot of psalms and he had a couple issues with some of his kids. But when we let one particular issue or one particular relationship or one particular aspect of brokenness in the world shape our idea and understanding of family and children and parenting, altogether we make a grave mistake. The psalmist says children are an inheritance from the Lord. They're like arrows in the quiver of a warrior. These are a blessing. They're for for good. They serve a purpose. They, They are to be our blessing. They enrich our lives. And the psalmist proclaims this with a high view of what it means to be a parent because he has a high view of children. And we see this even in the passage in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12 where those commandments are lined out and Paul references the first command with a promise that you're to honor your parents, honor your mother and father that it may go well with you and your days may be long upon the earth. You will read the scripture and you will see these references to parents and children, to mothers and fathers and sons and daughters throughout the Bible. Throughout the Bible. It cannot be avoided. And I would also suggest that it's there literally and figuratively. You have these instructions about the family. You have the institution of family and marriage in the garden. You have ways in which parents are to relate to their children and children to their parents and fathers to sons and and mothers and daughters and all of these kinds of things. And you also have great theological truths and great theological realities illustrated Through families, you and I, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, become brothers and sisters. The Apostle Paul refers to Timothy as his spiritual son. We have Jesus, the son, who is one with the father. This idea of fathers and sons, of mothers and daughters, of brothers and sisters, permeates all of the scripture, both in terms of the actual practical reality of the family, but also in a much more poetical and beautiful sense when it talks about the rich and deep relationships that we enjoy with God and with one another. He is our father. We run to him crying, Abba. It's a beautiful picture. It's not one that we should allow your experiences with family or what you see going on around you to discolor or to mar. The scripture presents these things as beautiful. Now with that said, I think there's a moment of transparency here that we have to be real and honest about what's going on in the world around us. There are cultural forces not just cultural, but social and even political and legislative forces that are attempting to tear at these things, to tear at marriage and family, to tear at motherhood and fatherhood, to tear at them, to tear them down, 
Now, why might that be? Because God created them perfectly in the garden for his glory. For his glory. For the good of the world. And yet there are forces that would tear at these. And I want you to think about this because you're living in a world in which these things are going on and you'll be having to navigate that, but you're also living in a world where these ideas begin to affect your own sensibilities and judgments about marriage and family. These forces in the world around us are tearing at marriage and family. They're tearing at the institution of it, trying to convince us that it's harmful, that it's oppressive, that it's impositional, that it's outdated, that it's antiquated. They're tearing at the ideas of it, that these will only keep you from being fulfilled, that these are actually, these are actually born of human tradition in particular cultural histories. They're actually even tearing at the words, mother and father, son and daughter, brother and sister. My wife has worked in the area of maternal child nursing for more than 30 years. More than 30 years. For more than 30 years, every form, everything online, every reference to someone entering into maternal child care was who is the mother? Today, that form says, who is the birthing person? The word mother is being eradicated from the language of maternal child care. Why? Because there is an, it, there is an intentionality that if we can tear down the words, mother and father, son and daughter, brother and sister, we can tear at the idea and tear down the practical application of those words in our lives, which were intended for our good and the good of the world and the glory of God. If you are sitting here today thinking that this notion that the world wants to eradicate these ideas is naive, I would say you're being naive. The forms, the official forms are now eradicating gender-specific terms like husband and father, mother and son, daughter, husband, wife, you name it, it's out, birthing person. Birthing person. In God's perfect design, a birthing person is a mother. It's a woman who is a mother. This is what's going on in the world around us. And your degree to which you want to engage in that in a polemical way and put your foot down and say, no, I will not stop referring it to that, referring it to it using these words is one thing. My concern is that that going on in the world around you begins to erode the high view of fatherhood and motherhood, of sonship and daughtership that you should have because the Bible has that. And these cultural forces are out there to undermine these things and they do it by undermining the words themselves. So I would give you a caution to be very careful because as Christians, we must not only value marriage and family, but uphold it and celebrate the words that express it. Jesus is born of a virgin, a woman who is his mother. And Joseph, her betrothed, has to deal with an incredibly complex dynamic. At this time of year, when we celebrate the advent, the incarnation, family is at the very core of it. God the Father sends his son to earth, 
born of a woman, raised by another man. He has other siblings. He lives life in this world. He takes on flesh and lives the human experience prior to his death, burial, and resurrection. So as Christians, we have to value and uphold these things because family is good because God made it so. It is good by his own declaration. It is good for us and it is good for the world. And family is purposeful. It's not just procreational. There are actually opportunities for us in the having and raising of children to demonstrate the love and grace and mercy of God. It isn't just to populate, it is actually bigger than that. There's an attempt to bring glory to God through marriage and family. It is, it is not there simply for you to have a new status or bigger tax credits. It's not simply there for you to check a box in life. There's something high and holy and sacred about the institution of family. There's a purpose and force behind it that we should not deny as Christians. Rather, we should uphold it, value it, and celebrate it. It is good. And I would state to you now, it is to be done well. These ideas that I want to talk to you about, these roles and relationships and responsibilities, they are all to be executed well as unto the Lord in obedience to him, to do good for others and good for this world, to bring glory to God. The way in which we parent and the way in which we respond to our parents is to be done in a particular way, well, and as unto the Lord. We carry out these roles and relationships and responsibilities on this earth as unto God and for his glory. And I think that's why Paul puts it at the end of this letter. Remember, you can't claim to hold on to all of these things and then deny the most practical aspects of your life, these relationships and roles and responsibilities that are yours. It is to be done well. In Ephesians 5, he talks about this. Children, honor your parents. Obey your parents in the Lord. Honor your father and mother. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Which would lead me to conclude that actually discipline and instruction are not synonymous with provoking your children to anger. It doesn't mean because you don't want to provoke your children to anger that you don't discipline them or give them instruction. Paul puts all of it right here. It's to be done in a particular way. So as you think about life, some of you in this room are parents, some of you will be parents, some of you may not be parents, but as you think about this, you should be intentional about it, that you're exercising of your responsibilities as fathers and mothers should be done intentionally the way in which you carry it out. There are gospel implications for the way we father and mother our children. We see this in Exodus 20. We see it in Proverbs as Solomon attempts to impart wisdom to his children. We see it in New Testament passages like this one. The Christian life means that you would execute these responsibilities that you view highly because they are good and you would do it well. But let me say this, it is to be done. We are to engage in marriage and the raising of children. It is to be done. In the doing of it is the demonstration of our value of it and our desire to uphold it. Have you thought about this? You say to yourself, well, I really think that this is really important. Well, how often do you spend time thinking about it? Almost none. How often do you spend time doing it? Very little. Then how would I know it's important to you? The reality is if we value these things, then we do them. 
It is to be done. In this is a demonstration of the value and upholding of marriage and family. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, God designed it this way. He created Adam and Eve in his image and said, let them be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth and have dominion over it. So let me ask you the question. In your own thinking, what is impeding you regarding this? Where are you in your thinking about marriage and family? Now's the time to be thinking about it. How do you value it? How will you live it out? Now I want to also offer this caveat because it's important. I've been at it too long. I have too many friends. I have too many former students. I've been at it too long. Some of you, some of you may remain single and some of you may be married and not have children and it won't be your choosing. That's the sovereign hand of God in our lives. And while this is instituted from the very beginning for our good, it is also true that it is not experienced by everyone. I'm not talking about that issue now. I'm not talking about those that want these things and never get them. I'm talking now to those of us who say, I know people say we should go after these things, but why would I? Why would I? It's a different question. And I do want you to think about it because some will go without. I also should add this caveat. Some of you will need to lay on the altar the fact that you have made marriage and children an idol. You want it more than anything else in the world. And if you do it that way for your own gratification, it will not be doing it well and in the way God intended. You have to accept the sovereign provision of God You have to avoid the temptation to make these things an idol, that all of your fulfillment and satisfaction and identity comes from these things. Rather, you should approach these things biblically and Christianly. And so I want to think about it. What are the things that impede us from wanting these things, marriage and family? As I talked to you last time, the, the, the average age of getting married is getting later and later, and that's not the end of the world but the later and later we get married, chances are the later and later we're, we're, we're actually having children and there is a clock and it does tick. There is a point at which it becomes dangerous and, and less likely to have children. But what are the things that are impeding us? And I've talked to students over the years and some of you who are even in the room today about the things that are actually affecting our thinking about marriage and family. Not for those who will not experience it by the sovereign hand of God and not for those who are actually pursuing it for the wrong reasons, but for those of us who might actually be wondering why in the world I would want to do this. And I think there are a couple of things we should guard against. One is the influence of the culture around us on our thinking, on our values. Because this idea that marriage and family is antiquated is a problem. If what we meant by antiquated is it's been around a long time, I will stipulate in legal terms and concede that is true. It's been around from the beginning. But just because it's old doesn't mean it's not useful. Doesn't mean it's not good. If you actually want to identify the ideas that are worth pursuing, look at the ideas that have stood the test of time. Be be leery and cautious about things that are new. If we say marriage and family is antiquated and outdated, a cultural manifestation that, that is imposed upon others, therefore it should be eradicated, what would you replace it with? What would you replace it with? This is what happens in progressivism. Oh no, the institution of marriage is inherently wrong because it exists. If we tear it down, the life, life for all of us would be so much better. But what will you replace it with? Do we conceive that we are wiser than God himself who did this at the very beginning? 
Would we be so arrogant to say that there must be something better than what God did at the beginning of human history? The other thing that happens to us in culture, though, is not the idea that it's, that it's dated and antiquated and unnecessary, but that it's imposing, that marriage and family will actually keep you from your best life. It will keep you from your career objectives. It will keep you from financial prosperity. It will keep you from seeking your own desires and doing that which fulfills your passions and interests. That marriage somehow and family will be a burden and a millstone to you that will keep you from experiencing the good life, but actually God put it in place so that you would have a full and fruitful life and give that to the rest of the world. But if the culture around us would say, no, this idea is going to impose upon you things that will disrupt your life and bring you anything but comfort, joy, prosperity, and achievement, that's a lie straight out of the pit of hell. You have to fight against it with everything that's in you because what God intended for good should be experienced as good. Then there are other issues, conditions, the state of the world. Um, I, I, I find myself now in this 50th decade making references to things, television shows, cartoon characters, other things that you have never heard of. But there was a sitcom in the 70s, All in the Family, where a working class man in Queens with some serious problems had a daughter who lived with him, with her boyfriend, and eventually they got married, but they, there was one episode in particular where the son and the, son, the daughter and son-in-law were saying they didn't want children because they didn't want to bring another mouth into this world that had to be fed, that would suffer. Look at the state of the world. How could we bring children into it? And of course, the, the, the traditionalist father is saying, well, that's just stupid. People have children. And the progressive intellectuals are saying, yes, but it's wiser not to bring them into this world. We're sparing them suffering. I remember watching that at the time and thinking, well, who's going to prevail? The traditional father who has all kinds of issues or the progressive enlightened kids who are living life for themselves? And then lo and behold, God intervenes and they have an unplanned pregnancy and everybody's views change. What a joy and blessing children are. Everything changes in the episode where the little boy is born. Everything changes. Stating that you will not engage in marriage and family because the state of the world is problematic is to actually decide something that no other generation has ever tried to decide. In fact, I read to you last time from Jeremiah 29, the children of Israel in exile are told, to marry, to give your sons and daughters in marriage and be fruitful and multiply, to build houses for yourself. You're in exile. The punishment of God, the wrath of God made known to you as a nation, O Israel. But in the city in which I placed you, seek what is good for all and keep living life, keep being married, keep having children. The state of the world should not keep us from this. In the same way, neither should the state of your life. And this is to miss it, to say, well, I couldn't possibly be married or have children because my family was an absolute train wreck. No, no, no. In the economy of Jesus, hope and redemption permeates all of life. All of life. You can't let the state of your own life or your experiences tell you whether or not you should engage in this part of life, marriage and family. Not the state of the world, not the state of your own life. Because the problems in this world are not related 
to a mother or a father or a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister. The problems that we see in this world are because we're sinners. What happens between Cain and Abel doesn't happen because Adam and Eve had kids. It happened because Adam and Eve sinned. What happened between Cain and Abel doesn't happen because Adam was a bad father or Eve was a bad mother. It happened because sin entered the world and it crouches at the door and seeks to devour you. Brothers and sisters, you must not allow the state of your experience to inform what you think about marriage and family and how you value it and how you will carry it out yourself because none of that is beyond the redeeming reach of Jesus Christ and all of it is a result of sin in the fall. I remember thinking to myself years ago, I knew a Christian leader who refused to address God as father because she had a problematic relationship with her own father and she just decided she was never going to address God as father. But Jesus addresses him as father. And her problems with her father were not because he was a father, but because he was a man born of sin. Be right in your thinking about what it is that is wrong in this world. What is wrong in this world is not the institution of marriage, not the concept of father and mother. What is wrong in this world is exactly why Jesus came into it. Sin and the fall have broken everything including these relationships. So you have the cultural forces that might lead you to to be hesitant. You have conditions about the world and your own life. You also may have your own confidence in marriage and family shaken by what you experience or what you see around you. But there's no replacement for it. I hear this a lot. That, that we should, it's not about marriage and family. We can actually do more for, we should. We sh- I mean, the instruction of the church is to care for widows and orphans, to become surrogate fathers and children, to actually care for those in need, to build communities in our churches, to recognize that we're a body of believers who have obligation to one another. But those things don't replace family. They supplement and augment for places where the family is broken by sin in the fall. Don't be duped into thinking that these things are better than what God designed. These things are actually mediations for what sin in the fall ruined in marriage and the family. If you think about them that way, I think two things will happen. You'll have a higher view of marriage and the family, and you'll be more involved in helping those who have struggled in that area. You will be more helpful to widows and orphans and abandoned wives and discarded husbands. Your state of compassion and grace will grow because you're not looking to replace family, but to bring the blessing of family to those who have had a bad experience with it. You can be confident because the spirit is at work in the body of Christ to do good works, and that includes caring for families who have had a hard go of it. But let's be clear. What is broken in this world are not the institutions of it, not marriage, not family, Not the word mother, not the word father, not the word son, not the word daughter. What is broken in this world is the nature of humanity because of sin and the fall. But we as Christians, especially at this Advent season, we should be very mindful that we have been redeemed, that we're enabled by God's grace, that we're to live obediently and hopefully. And that should be borne out in our families. This is God's design. It's good and good for us. It's to do good in the world. We're to do it and to do it well. My hope and prayer is that you will take some time at some course in the next weeks and months to think about what you think about marriage and family.
Because some of you right now are thinking, I don't want anything to do with it. And I promise you, you will. And you'll be caught flat-footed. Some of you have made it an idol and you're distracted by it. Some of you are running from it. Just sit down and think. This is instituted at creation for good and the glory of God. We should love it and value it and uphold it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you for this time together that we can think on these issues. We pray that you would give these students grace and wisdom to think about the ways in which the world is influencing their judgments and sensibility about these important things, about marriage, about family, about being parents and sons and daughters. We pray that you would give them grace to think through them clearly, give them faith to trust you and have confidence in this thing that you have done. And Father, give them the strength to stand, to be wise in knowing the way in world the way in which the world is influencing them. Give them the courage to stand and hold fast and uphold these things which you uphold. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week.